Welcome back. This must be the biggest collection of non-smokers in Brixton, I reckon, we've got here. Um, right, next up, we have Jenny Stollard, who's a writer and editor, and who is now on the features team at the community newspaper, The Metro. After years of freelancing for women's magazines and sharing her thoughts on single life, she's written two books, Travel and the Single Girl and The Last Resort, as well as a dating column for The Metro called Boyfriend by Christmas. She's still single, but as her mum pointed out, you never said which Christmas. Jenny loves dogs, skiing, writing, and reading. Has begun dabbling in stand-up comedy, where she muses on everything from Tinder finger to pre-diet. Please welcome to the stage, Jenny Stollard. Evening. Thank you. So, I wrote a column between October and December last year called Boyfriend by Christmas, and when it began at the time, it seemed like a good idea, but as December approached, it got a little bit nerve-wracking. Um, all female journalists kind of think they've got a Carrie Bradshaw moment in them, but what I actually realised is the best way to put men off is to write about them. Yeah, so um, this is my final column that I wrote, and the headline was Single and Happy, and this is December 2014. With her deadline to find a fella fast approaching, Jenny Stallard reflects on lessons learnt from the dating game. And so the end is near. I've nearly eaten my final mince pie. There is just one week until Christmas Day and I do not have a boyfriend. The search went north to Leeds at the weekend where one man kindly told me, well you've failed then. I thought for a moment and sipped my Prosecco. Au contraire, as they say en France, Mr Northern Man, I said, I do not feel a sense of failure. In fact, I have a renewed sense of confidence and happiness. I think I convinced him. Sure, I'd like to meet someone, but this boyfriend by Christmas lark has stopped me being so serious about the whole single thing. Hurrah, say my friends and family. Well, Mum didn't hurrah, she just laughed and went, "Hi, oh, you never said which Christmas. I have, along the way, between October and December, with my wingwoman Carly, played crazy golf, made pizzas, sniffed T-shirts, speed dated, been to dating parties, ice skated... I've been on plenty of fish, or Finding Nemo, as I like to call it. <laughs> I've played Tinder, got what I thought was Tinder finder, Finger, and then learnt that Tinder Finger is from swiping. And during the week leading up to this column, I even learnt to flirt with strangers, sober. Sober. <laughs> I am referring to an afternoon with flirt expert, Jean Smith. Jean embodies the US style of no-nonsense dating. You imagine they do in the States, but never really sure actually happened. She makes you walk along the street, talking to strangers and asking them things like, do you know where to get a nice coffee around here? At first I was petrified. I didn't want to interrupt their day. You're assuming they won't want to talk to you, Jean said in a very New York twang. Sure enough, each man stopped, talked immediately, and when I said I was having a flirting lesson revealed that he was nothing but pleased to have been approached by a nice, lovely young lady. Who <laughs> oh, me? <laughs> He's talking about me. Awesome. So this final dating challenge was quite a revelation. I know I hide behind a wall of banter and slightly fake confidence when it comes to chatting to men. Being nice and polite and non-sarcastic was quite a challenge. <laughs> it worked, though, and it taught me one of the biggest lessons I learned through my column, one of five things I'd like to share with you now. Drum roll, please, for the five lessons of Boyfriend by Christmas. Thank you. 
Number one, we have lost the art of conversation when it comes to dating. It's time to reclaim it, and I vow that in 2015, I won't be online all the time, and I will talk to men in person. Sober. I know. Everyone needs a wingwoman or man. Don't go through the dating journey alone. At the end of the night, you will never leave alone if you've arrived with someone in the first place. Number three, dating is a numbers game, AKA collect and select. Putting all your emotional eggs in one basket will lead to only one place, misery and confusion. I'm not saying go out with half the city at once, but it doesn't hurt to keep your options open until he's uttered the B word, boyfriend. Number four, being single can be lonely, but only if you let it. I have felt so angry, confused, and self-critical over the years for being single. No man will ever make that feeling go away. It's up to you to take yourself to a happier place. And as my friend Sharon once said to me, it's better to be on the shelf than in the wrong cupboard. <laughs> and finally, number five, men will disappear on you. Yes, all the men I have dated during Boyfriend by Christmas, Houdinis of the dating world. Girls, when this happens, move on and fast. And men, for that matter, if women disappear on you. We're all talking about the disappearance of the double blue WhatsApp tick, aren't we? Right? <laughs> if they've decided they don't want another date, generally they'll stop texting. Don't ponder on it. Don't demand answers. Plough your energy into finding someone who will do you the courtesy of staying in touch. Now, I can't hang around being sentimental because there's only nine months until this Christmas. And I do worry that I'm going to die alone because I keep having to take the batteries out of the smoke alarm. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Jenny. Okay, next up we have Rosie Wilby who's an award-winning comedian and who has appeared on Radio 4 shows including Woman's Hour, Loose Ends and Far Thought, and at major festivals including Latitude, Green Man and Glastonbury. She's recently been shortlisted for Miselexia Memoir Competition and featured in the Accent Press anthology of Celebrity Coming Out Stories, It's Okay to Be Gay. She has had articles published by Sunday Times, New Statesman, The Independent and more. Please welcome to the stage, Rosie Wilby. Uh, yeah. Hello, Brixton. Are you all right? I like you over there. Hello. So, yes. Oh, I've been known. It was interesting hearing about the dating, wasn't it? I've been known to do a bit of internet dating in my time. When I was on that match.com, they sent me my own profile back to me. <laughs> what, what was really weird was it had calculated that I was a 73% match. <laughs> I'm quite sure how that worked out, frankly. Uh, but it's great to be here at night celebrating real books. There's lots of real books at the back there, people from reading from real books, because I, uh, I have a partner who is a few years younger than me. Yeah, go me. And, um, and we were locked in that constant battle about what's better, you know, the old school or the digital. Um, so it's made me want to embrace all the old stuff constantly. And when we were on the train the other day and she got out her Kindle, I got out my Bayer Tapestry. Unravels. Quite a boring one. I haven't actually got to the bit yeah, where he gets the, you know, the arrow in the eye. Hope you're not reading the same Bayer Tapestry as me, because that's, that's quite a spoiler. 
So <laughs> I'm going to read a little bit from an anthology that I was included in, which was mentioned there, Celebrity Coming Out Stories. So it's a load of celebrities and me. <laughs> so here we go. Steffi Graf's return hovers bee-like on the net cord and falls back on her own side. Yes, my mum is surprised I'm not supporting the young upstart, but how can she even be in the Wimbledon final? She's only a year older than me. Didn't she have to revise for exams? Still, justice prevails. Martina Navratilova leaps, superwoman-like, flying up into the air from the threadbare centre court lawn. My own exams are done and dusted, and I'm smug in the knowledge I'm home and dry, because I know I'm different, like Martina. This is a good thing. She's a winner. There's nobody else like us, except perhaps her friend that she hugs up in the player's box. Why do the commentators say friend in such a weird way? <laughs> Later, I videotape the BBC highlights montage and rewind and replay the scene where she hugs Chris Evert at the end of their semi-final. Set to music, it seems romantic and makes me feel a bit swoony. I'm not sure which one I want to be. My own superpower has not manifested itself in sporting excellence. That would be a stretch, given the weedy physique of both of my parents. They even have small, weak cars, as if to further demonstrate our family defects. A childhood ride in my dad's mini-metro, rendered even more humiliating by the addition of a Vote Kilroy Silk banner <laughs> across the back window which ran above my head for years like an unwanted cartoon thought bubble. <laughs> Fortunately, in 1983, they abolished the constituency. He was no longer our MP, and the banner has been removed. PE teacher Miss Bullock, also on my different radar, as she lives with a fellow tracksuit-clad woman in Worley Drive, tries her best with me regardless of my challenge stature. My attempt at a Fosbury flop in games is disastrous. The high jump bar sets so low that even the girl with ME manages to faint over it. <laughs> For now, I just have these last few post-exam redundant days of summer term to get through unscathed, undiscovered. I spend as much time as possible around JJ, kneeling at her desk with a handful of Thornton's Alpini, her favourites. For two years now, I've given my unwanted feelings an elaborate system of secret codes. Every so often, I switch my attentions to a different girl just so I know I'm in control of it and not the other way around. I note her initials in my diary, along with possible times and places for seemingly impromptu, yet incredibly staged, meetings based on her timetable. One day, I decide to accept a date with Darren Bond, after he writes me an admiring note, signing it 007. <laughs> Ironic, really, as he reveals himself to be a much less effective secret agent than I. I love his long, floppy fringe, now recovered from a mishap with a Bunsen burner. It almost makes him look like a girl, or one of Wham, which is just as good. Still, nothing happens on our aimless date as we mooch around Ormskirk. It's an unsexy Lancashire town, famous for its market, clock tower and gingerbread. Unsexy, that is, until the arrival of Kevin, the bisexual hairdresser, and his salon designers. Designers with a Z. 
Not many people in Ormskirk know what the word bisexual means, so Mum has to explain to the other mothers it's not the same as hermaphrodite. <laughs> Kevin offers me a free perm on condition he can display a photo in the window. Yet sadly, it's not the popular shaggy poodle perm, but more of a curious mushroom shape that sits on top of my head. Kevin pops a photo in the window and designers closes down. Mum is on to me. One day she pops out to the garage to get some fish out of the deep freezer and disturbs me basking on the front patio to say I wouldn't mind if I had a daughter who was a lesbian. She then proceeds to tell me something about her and her friend Joan on holiday. <laughs> I'm not listening. I scowl. I'm not ready for this. It's my own private world. Maybe the neighbours can hear. She merrily pops back into the house to triumphantly return with a book of lesbian poetry. <laughs> Later, she reads at it from the tea table. What is she doing? My dad and I shift uncomfortably in our seats. Finally, on the last day of school, I see JJ ahead as we're all leaving. A devil in me takes over and I catch her up. I'm sorry for being weird around you. I was in love with you, I say. But don't worry, I'm not anymore. She's... She slows down, traumatised by this news and my flippant delivery of it, <laughs> leaving me to skip graceful and agile like Martina on centre court out of the gates for the final time. I am free for now to be whatever I want to be. Thank you. Thank you, Rosie. Next up, we have Cotia Newland. First novel, The Scholar, was published in 1997, and further critically acclaimed work includes Society Within, that's 1999, and Snakeskin, 2002, Dying Wish, 2006, and Music for the Off Key, 2006, and A Book of Blues. He's co-editor of IC3, the Penguin Book of New Black Writing in Britain, and as short stories features in many anthologies, his career has encompassed both screen and playwriting. Players include B is for Black and an adaption of Euripides' Women of Troy. Please welcome to the stage, Cartier Newland. Thank you, thank you for having me. Um, I officially don't really live in Brixton anymore, but I know it's terrible, but yeah, but uh, I've been allowed back by Zelda, so that was a secret. It's not anymore. Um, I just, this is really interesting. I've got, whenever you order like a glass of water from the bar, they always like stick a straw in it to make, to kind of jazz it up, kind of thing. It's like, you've got this little straw here. Thank you, thank you, it's lovely. Um, free. Sympathetic of you. Um, yeah, so uh, I have got a book out called uh, The Gospel of Quinta Cain. It's my latest novel. Uh, it came out in uh, 2013. And uh, I'm going to read from that. Uh, it's currently, it's been optioned by uh, BBC and uh, Cowboy Films. And hopefully it'll be made into a three-part drama. So it's really exciting stuff. Uh, we're in that process right now. Um, it's not a particularly, I mean... It's about a woman whose child was abducted when he was eight months old 
and then uh, 20 years later, her, this, this kid turns up on her doorstep and knocks on the door and says, I'm your son. So uh, she believes that he is her son. No one else around her believes her. And it's about this journey as to finding out whether or not he's actually uh, her son. Uh, so it's not a particularly cheery book. So, um, so with that in mind, I decided the best bit to read would probably be the sex scene. That <laughs> makes sense, right? What do you guys think? Yeah? Yeah, thank you. So uh, that's the bit I'll read. There's a bit, little bit of preamble uh, before that, and then, no pun intended, we'll get into it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, gospel. Bright midday sun, unbroken blue. A cold breeze that swept through the body, causing us to sway as much with, with the gentle force of nature as to keep warm. Hands in pockets, scarves and gloves. Feathered hats, dark suits, and the singing. Oh God, the singing. Voices as much a part of me as my breath or my lungs. Voices that recall black velvet on walls. The imprint of fluorescent parishes, islands. Tiny Venetian glasses embossed with gold, matching plates, the low creak of plastic on cream sofas. Gone now, forever gone. But the voices are with us, they remain, rising and falling like bitter wind, shaping who we were, who we are. Rock of ages, abide with me. Onward, Christian soldiers. The young holding hymn books and pamphlets, elders reciting from memory the sweet sound of joined voices, women overpowering men, leading the way with strident tones, nasal and high, men weaving baritones beneath, a tapestry of sound, beautiful harmony that resonated, shook me, made me smile even as tears fell, even as I raised my face to the light, even as the abrupt sound of the spade ripped into earth, ripped into me, and I fell against Ida, and she held me and cradled me, and though I buried my head in a thick fur coat, it was all I could do not to feel joy, because it was beautiful and ours. The sharp fall of the spade joined by others, I forced my head to rise. The women continued to sing while the men worked with the compact sinewy sextons, digging and lifting, lifting and throwing. Frank was there, mud on shoes, jacketless, shirt rolled to elbows. Patrick too, tears falling as he pushed, placed a foot on heaped mud, pulled. Jackie stood to one side. Frank's jacket hung over one arm, staring at the grave. I wandered over, mouth moving, grabbed a pile of mud and hefted, threw. Jackie came to my side. She grabbed the pile, threw. We wailed and held each other. It felt good. I let Jackie go, walked to a sexton, gestured for his spade. He seemed dumbfounded, but handed it to me without argument, and I pushed into the earth, relished the shudder of connection, the tingle in my arms. Lifted. Everyone was looking. There was another crunch of a spade close beside me, and when I turned, it was Jackie, wearing a grim, downturned smile. We dug and threw, threw and dug. More spades, the sextons outgunning us with a pace that was difficult to believe, let alone match. Yet they eyed us without a smile and nodded, Eyes blue as sky, sweat dripping onto earth, and we kept going until we were sweating with them. And the singing went on. High notes and low, loud and soft, patient and everlasting as the ocean. The singing went on, and we buried my father. Even when the reverend said his final words, father still managed to surprise us. 
there we were in the center of the looming Victorian cemetery, in mourning by the plot occupied by his father before him and his mother and mine, far away from it, any walls or houses, when a rich smell of curry goat began to rise. And the mourners began to look at each other, half smiling, confused. Everyone knew it was his favorite dish. Even the reverend, who didn't, was frowning and looking over his shoulder, Bible in hand, eulogy forgotten as the smell grew stronger. Jackie laughed, cried. Frank shook his head, looked upward, and Patrick's eyes met mine with the tiniest hint of a smile. New wife and a smudge of out-of-focus beauty. And the shiver went through me, not of fear or cold, but because it would happen. The community hall, eating before trestle tables. When the time for speeches came, the photographer asked to speak. And we all smelled the curry rise over the congregation, so you know he reached a better place, ah? He said, dark face and white teeth, still chewing. He received the longest applause. Frank got off to support Jackie, who had taken the microphone and was beginning to stand. I slipped into the corridor, upstairs to the room with all the coats, fumbled for my pack of embassy, opened a window, a temporary habit, only a few years, and I always knew I'd give up. The door swung toward me. I jumped. Hello there. He'd caught me sitting on a spare table, half turned, blowing smoke from the window. I stubbed the cigarette against brick, let it fall. It's a wonder I didn't burn the place down. Patrick, you don't have to stop. Jackie told me you smoke. It's only a puff. Patrick came nearer. It was written all over his face. Mine too, I have to admit. Had been at the graveside. What would father have said? Where's Rochelle? In the car. She knows I have to say my goodbyes. When are you leaving? Tomorrow night, he said, looking at muddy shoes. Eight. He kneeled in front of me. There was more gray, less hair. I reached for him, stroked his head. Be quick. No, he said, and took off my shoes. I won't. They can wait. Rochelle? All of them. He kissed my feet, rolled down my tights. His warm mouth made my skin feel colder. Lips on ankles, calves, heels. I lay back, pulled my dress over my hips. He stayed there, planting tiny kisses all the way up my inner thigh. Held my waist in both hands. She'll be suspicious. Yes. Don't you care? No. What about me? What do you suppose they'll think about me? You're my wife, Beverly. Not anymore. In spirit. You are in spirit. I took my knickers off laughed and gave them to him. He folded them into a neat square and put them in his pocket. Load of rubbish, and you be careful with those. He ducked his head, ignored me. I sucked in air. Easy, you said they could wait. Sorry, he said, voice muscle, muffled. And the rumble of him was like a memory recalled. Then he did the thing that I like and I couldn't stop. I put my legs on each shoulder, leaned against the wall, moved my hips threw myself forward, grabbed his head, let it all out with a moan that turned into gasped laughter. That was good, he said, quick. Let me do you. Wait. He did it again, 
I could hear music from the hall, throbbing bass. Lost myself, heard nothing. Jackie would be annoyed, would know, they all would, the elders and the cousins I'd never met, the reverend and the photographer. He did it again, and it happened twice that time. Shuddering, sweet pain. My legs fell. He got up, wiped his mouth, unbuckled his pants. My legs unsteady as we exchanged paces. I kneeled. I love you, Beverly Masters. Cottrell, I said, and took him in my hand. Patrick laughed. God, I'm going to miss you. Oh, God. He leaned back, gripped the table. That nice? Yes. I looked up at him. I hate you. Don't say that. I hate you and I love you. Don't say that, Beverly. You don't mean it. It's true. No one can be me. No one can be us. That doesn't matter now, does it? I kept on until he began to gasp. I stopped and got up, pulled my dress around my hips, leaned forward on the table. Patrick stood behind me. The first part was every bit as pleasurable as I remembered. The second was never going to be sweet and subtle like the film. Soft focus lighting and soft moans. It was hard and brutal, composed of everything between us, a mixture of emotion, necessity and greed. We were noisy and we didn't care. We talked, made idle promises, accusations, teased and joked, nothing like our old way. Patrick kept relentless pace until he thrust hard, four times, fell against me. And in that quick moment, I wanted the miracle. I wanted to accept everything and start again, with or without him. I wanted something that was mine, that I could carry in my pocket. But he gave me nothing, because nothing was there. I'd rolled up my tights and pulled down my dress by the time Jackie appeared at the door. Peered through the glass, glass right at me, father's lodge buddy beside her. Her face struck with rage, dragging the elder in a clatter of heels. I fell against the table, hit the rounded corner with my hand and only hurt myself. Shit, what's wrong? Patrick said, adjusting his tie. He hadn't seen a thing. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Cartier. Okay, next we have Susie Cornfield, who's an established journalist with more than 20 years' experience working for various national publications, including the Sunday Telegraph and the Sunday Times. As a writer for the BBC TV and a producer for United Artists TV. A successfully published author, her latest foray into writing, The Chronicles of Decadence, has been lauded as having a piercing quality which shines with the originality of Alice in Wonderland Jay Waterstones, and like Philip Pullman on speed, Piers Plowright. Please welcome to the stage Susie Cornfield. Because you're sitting down, I'm afraid I'm going to have to sit back too. But we have great respect. And also, so many lovely comedians aboard turned up comedians that I thought, I can be the first sitting down comedian. Properly. 
are you receiving me? Hello? Thank you very much. Shout if you can't hear me, because I can't hear myself. Anyway, I'm sitting down, and I'm about to read chapter one of Red Ice, which is uh, probably g gave me back problems as well by lifting this constantly of 770 pa 770 pages, which I didn't realize I was going to do. However, this trilogy is, um, I in very few words, about youngsters deciding that they really needed to save the planet, planet from climate change. And in the process, they have to give up their own ambitions, their own problems they have to put to one side uh, to realize very quickly in book one and two that uh, really the real problem is adults. No surprise there then. So this, um, I, I think I got more and more political, more and more uh, satirical in fighting back against things in the book, or fighting for things in the book, like honor killings, things that were going on in real life, and how would the youngsters react to this, and how do we react as adults to it all. That sounds very complicated. I think I ought to write another preview. Um, anyway, this is called Red Ice, and it's so scary that apparently this makes boys, and I hope gentlemen as well, uh, keen to read it some reason. Uh, chapter one is Holy Disorders. I'm, um, I'm, I'm just popping out for a bit, says God airily. Mother Nature glances up from a pile of papers. No need uh, to tell me where you're going, she says. Those old trousers speak for you. Actually, she's American, but she just had an Irish slot there. There's a crisis on Earth, says God. <laughs> so what's new, asked Mother Nature. I, I had such faith in this model of mankind, but now, why do I sense the hand of Diablo? Mother Nature sighs. Spot on as ever, God says sadly. Human beings are in desperate need. Aren't we all? Mother Nature says sharply. Uh, uh, yes, yes, in many ways, yes, God says reflectively. What's your problem? The TV licensing people, says Mother Nature crossly. They're suing you for zillions in unpaid licenses. They say every home on earth has a TV and thus conclude that each and every church worldwide must have one too. E even when there's no one in them, God shakes his head. You're exaggerating as ever, says Mother Nature impatiently. Not, not my march. I get the feeling your makeover isn't working out, says Mother Nature. God brushes the cracker crumbs and feathers off his trousers. D do you want to come with me, he says. You, you've missed the last few trips. Why do you bother with planet Earth, says Mother Nature? You always come back from it stressed out. We, we, we have been through this before, says God. Yes, said Mother Nature, but this is the last time. Jolly good, because I'm not giving up on them. <laughs> Suit yourself, says Mother Nature, stacking up a pile of papers, because I am giving up on them. Uh, you, you can't, God looks appalled. Yes, I can. They're a bad lot. I don't know how you've kept faith with them when they have so little faith in you. You keep expecting them to see the light. They won't. They're blind to it. Why? because they're the most self-centered, greedy, and despicable life form you've ever created. You got the formula wrong, you made a mistake, certainly in getting me involved. Why not admit it and walk away? God is aghast. But, but, they 
they're our children, he says. They're, they're experiencing droughts and floods and an increasingly toxic environment. They're fretting about man-made climate change while they see real food, water, and fresh air running out, along with jobs and a future. The only constant in their lives is war. <laughs> Whose fault is that, then? Theirs? and the execrable politicians they insist on electing over and over again? Um, not entirely fair. The fault lies with the president of the union, or federation, as he has chosen to call the lands under his bullying domination. I've told you over centuries, they take your name in vain, and the president is no different from the rest of them, Mother Nature sighs. They set up churches in your name to escape paying taxes and continue their abominable abuse. And they drag your name through the mud and blood of countless wars and unnecessary deaths. They are cruel, dishonest, avaricious hypocrites. God is staring at his centuries-old sandals. They're showing signs of wear. No one makes them anymore. And he's long forgotten the necessary skills. Look at the way they treat me, their mother, Mother Nature continues, her indignation rising. Every minute of every day, they abuse, pollute, ravage, burn, and rob me. They develop chemicals to kill me. Only now are they discovering ancient crops don't need fertilizers and can survive floods without chemicals. And that answers to human health are often in the natural world. But what do they do? Nothing. No, it's too late, I've had enough. They are the problem on planet Earth, and I want nothing more to do with them. But, 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 but what about the innocents, God protests? What about Will, Piccolo, and Ruby Q, and Indigo, Tomo, North, Grout, and poor wee Nigel, the talented violinist miniaturized cruelly by decadence? What about the phoenix and all the other young people fighting for good causes? All of them need our help. It's too late, Mother Nature interrupts. You're too indecisive. You can never decide whether you are the angry God of the Old Testament, out for revenge, or the loving God of the new who's into forgiveness. You've no idea whose side you're on. The one thing is crystal clear. It ain't mine! God stares at Mother Nature in shocking disbelief. W what are you saying? I'm saying our union is at an end, says Mother Nature. So take this in remembrance of me. She pushes several mountains of papers across her desk towards him. But, but, begins God, watching aghast as piles of paper avalanche to the floor. Look, as it was in the beginning, it was fun and interesting, says Mother Nature, but I can no longer stomach humans and their arrogant, ignorant ways. Neither can I tolerate working under your hands-off, non-interfering liberal policy. From now on, I fight only for the planet, for wildlife and nature. If it comes to it, I'll fight you to the bitter end. Oh my God, oh my God, says God, staring into the eyes of his long-term partner. No point talking to yourself, scoffs Mother Nature. You never listen. What am I going to do, he cries out. Mother Nature slips her spectacles into her pocket and stands up. God swallows hard. She's wearing the blue dress he created for their first date, albeit while he was struggling to recover from a broken rib. 
You know all the answers, she says, as well as all the questions. You don't need me. You can work it out for yourself. And with that, she walks off. God stares, dumbstruck at her departing figure. And get someone to fix this, she shouts out, forcing the rotting, unpearly gate behind her to shut. Otherwise, you'll have trouble with the neighbors from hell again. God is staring at the cloud matting beneath his feet. Is it a raindrop or a tear from his eye that runs down his cheek? It's impossible to say for sure. Locking his worries and a handful of private thoughts inside an innocent-looking fluffy white cloud, God sighs. He's about to switch heaven to remote when he remembers there's something he must attend to urgently before he leaves. Ta-da! Okay, take another 15 minutes and we'll be back with some more writers. Emma and Sheila in the corner selling books. Cheap books, possibly signed. See you all soon. <laughs>